Hello friends, I'm Ashish Darbari, founder and CEO of Faximize. To our new listeners, welcome, and to our old ones, welcome back. Today I have the pleasure of talking to Simon Davidman, CEO of Impedus and one of the co-inventors of System Weldlog. Hello Simon, uh, you are the CEO of Impedus, one of the inventors of Weldlog, a key voice in the RISC-V ecosystem. Uh, before we talk about the fascinating things you're doing now, I would like to share a bit on your personal journey, uh, especially where were you born, how did you get into science and engineering, if you don't mind. Sure, Ashish, and thank, thank you for having me on, on this. Um, so, yeah, so um, I was born in the UK, and uh, I guess I was an inquisitive child. Um, I wasn't sure of my career direction after doing my sort of schoolwork, and for a degree I went and decided, okay, I wasn't sure, so I did math, physics, and electronics um, as a joint thing, but in my first year, I touched my first computer, I mean, that was back in 1978, and that was a DEC, PDP-10, wow. and uh, Fortran, and I was completely hooked, and I was just intrigued by the software side of things, but much more, I was intrigued at how it was built, intrigued about how it was built. I wanted to try and understand, so I decided to switch and focus on basically electronics with a bit of computing behind it. And uh, so that's the degree I did, straight electronics really, and built projects using uh, early microprocessors back in the late 70s. And I stayed on and uh, did a PhD, started a PhD I should say. I never finished it, it was focused on simulation, and I got into uh, hardware description language and gate level simulators and ended up moving to another university where they were developing a simulator which called um, and a language called Hilo, which was the first sort of HDL with timing in it. And um, so, I was so involved sorry to in interrupt you briefly. So which year was this when you were uh, looking at HDLs and your So um, uh, back in my uh, uh, PhD days, it was uh, late 70s, 1978. Wow. I started a PhD on uh, simulation where I had a, a simulator from Carnegie Mellon, another one from another university from America. And I basically pulled them apart and put them back together again and built a multi-level simulator. But was more interested in the languages of simulation and moved to work on the Hilo project at another university to work on that language and simulators. And that Hilo technology actually became the basis of Verilog. And its focus was really on the simulation of, of boards and then chips to verify chips. And so I did that back to, uh, I don't know, late, no, early 80s, 84. And then I got seduced by a friend of mine who was into electronic music to go and join his uh, music company, digital percussion uh, company. And we built um, electronic drums. The company was called Simmons. And we became famous as the creator of electronic drums, where we built hexagonal drums. And in the 80s, you watch all the UK and also a lot of American pop bands that were using these hexagonal electronic drums. And initially, they were basically analog. And I was brought in to add computers to this. And the last product I built there had uh, five microprocessors in it, including two DSPs, a 68K, some 8051s, hard disks, floppies, screens, trackable, 16-bit uh, sampler, sequencer, MIDI, and full drum kit. And it was uh, an amazing technology. It was like building a, an early Macintosh computer. This and, sounds uh, really fascinating. So what I find quite intriguing in your journey is that, okay, you played with computers early on, then you got interested in simulators, and into hardware description languages. And at the same time, your interest in music was making you do a lot of hands-on work with building things with processors and music and so on. It, 
It's, this seems to be a common theme I hear quite often, Simon. Um, we talked to Harry Foster a few weeks ago, and he seems to have a lot of interest in music. It seems like music and, and science and music and electronics seem to be quite closely connected. So I want to talk to you a bit more about the HDLs and the simulators in a while. But um, you, you said you didn't finish your PhD. Was it because of a particular reason or because you just thought there were more interesting things to do outside <laughs> the PhD life? Yeah, yeah, there were actually, there were five of us on that project and all of us were registered to do our PhDs when all of us got, uh, decided it was more, more exciting to build things rather than research them. So, you know, I'd only been a couple of years into my PhD and I wanted to build simulators. I didn't want to write up about things. Mm. I wanted to get things that, and build things that people could use and touch and play with and really try and understand how to build things. So it was about building things for others to use that I was doing with the HDLs. And, and actually, I went and lived in America for a while and enjoyed that, helping the early customers of HDLs and uh, designing their chips. But you know, I, I got into wanting to build things, hence going back into an electronics company to build where I was the, the technical director. So I was involved in the, as the architect. And actually, I did the, a lot of the electronic design and the software design and got more and more into the software side of things. And actually, as I said, the last product we built had five intercommunicating inter uh, processors, all, all with pipelines sharing between them and sequences and stuff like that. And it was all real time. And um, you know, it was very exciting to build products and have some of the world's best drummers come into the factory and, and, and try and play it from great jazz drummers like Billy Cobham through to um, Bill Bruford from Yes and King Crimson, uh, all users of this technology. And uh, plus all the pop bands as well. It was just very exciting. But it was about building products that people could use and understanding underneath of them there's a lot of electronics and microprocessors and software is going, so, going on. So this is, and, this is 1980s, right? Uh, yeah, early 80s and uh, 84 to 88. And actually, we ended up, for that last project, we built two custom circuits. And they actually were, were verified uh, NEC chips with the uh, high load. And it just, I got lured back into EDA again after that. <laughs> You know, I, I thought, well, actually, EDA is just getting more exciting. And actually, Hyler were then the guys who I'd worked with, they evolved it into Verilog. And I went and joined Gateway, the developers of Verilog, and helped set right, up. Right, right. So before you get into the Verilog, right, I just wanted to take the opportunity to highlight two interesting snapshots. So we're sitting here talking to you in 2020 as CEO of Impetus, and you're talking about all of this fascinating work on simulators. I mean, you're talking about building simulators for digital systems and building uh, microprocessor-based musical instruments. This is way back in the 80s when a lot of the world didn't even have access to uh, processors or even computers, you know. Um, I remember playing with one in 1982 at home. Um, but now you are at Impetus. Um, You're running a very successful company. Um, so in these 35, 40 years that have elapsed, um, you, you were beginning to say you were moving into Verilog. So I want to talk about Verilog in a second, but first tell me, what is Impetus doing these days? What are the key technology challenges you're overcoming with your solutions today at Impetus? Yeah, so, okay. I mean, it sort of evolves in, through, through the hardware and software, but in, my, in the Verilog days, I'll come back to it. You know, sure. it was all about trying to, to to ensure that the uh, a chip worked, okay, about verification. And your know, simulation is the foundation of all SOC verification. 
And it's a very successful, very intense part of the EDA industry. And what we found in, in before it formed Imperis is that we kept finding customers in their SOC that had lots of little processes doing state machines, doing controllers. And there was a lot of software deeply embedded inside the SOC that the user never sees. And what, what I realized is that the challenge that they were having was it was very hard to, to verify their solutions when there was sort of a lot of software inside them. And, and it became apparent back, you know, mid-2000s, that all electronic products were going to be defined by the software that they have in them. And the microprocessor, the processes inside it was going to enable so much software, whether it was a single processor or many little processors, that, and software was going to define electronic products. So what we did with, in founding Imperus was say, nobody designs an SOC without simulating it, mm -hmm. and nobody should divide, design and develop embedded software without simulating. Absolutely. So we, we, we basically, Imperis was founded to try and provide simulation, verification, debug and analysis for people building software in embedded systems in the same way the EVA industry has built up to give people simulation, verification, analysis of SOC designs. We wanted to provide that to the software developers at the, in the low levels and the firmware and the, the hardware connected software that they're in electronic products. And so that's really what our focus in Empiris is. And that sounds very unique to me because you're targeting a very important problem space, which is, as you said, uh, development of embedded software. And yes. you're saying, okay, let's build simulators and actually address that problem. I don't yeah. know if there are many companies who are no. in that space. No, and, 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 and I think that, that if, if I use the words virtual platforms, and that's what... Mm. These are. You'll be aware of that, and that's what a lot of companies, the terminology they use. The yeah. purpose of a virtual platform is it allows people to model their SOC or their platform Correct. In, a, in a way that enables sort of high-performance simulations so they can get their software to run and then provide tools to allow things like multi-core debug, uh, analysis and profiling of how things are software is running, and then help that into the verification domain and hook into the likes of the, the, the Verilog world so that they can have simulations of their software running while it interacts with the detailed RTL of their behavioral components, their peripherals they're building. So that you know, our focus in Empiris is to provide high-speed simulation and analysis of software running so it can be used for people building the systems, building larger software systems. So are, you, so are you actually building simulation models of just processors or also the other components in the SOC, the peripherals, uh, the buses? Um, yes. Is it yeah, I mean, well, there's, sort of, there's sort of three or four levels of this. There's the basic processor components, and we have a library of 250 to 300 public models from all the ARM, all the MIPS, Power, Renaissance, uh, and more recently, RISC V. So those are instruction accurate, very high performance simulation models of the processor. We then have a library of behavioral components, where there's about 300 of those, which cover simple things like UARTs uh -huh. and IOs and things yeah. like that. Yeah. But go all the way up to Ethernet and USB. And yeah. some of them are just register functionality, but some of them are full functionality. So that in our simulation, you can simulate an ARM system with the USB. And then you can actually plug a memory stick into your PC and the simulation can read and write it because the USB simulation model can actually talk to the USB 
drivers and device in the hardware and ethernet we can have an, a simulation of an ethernet device as part of our arm or risc platform and then you can do a w get in your simulation and access the internet and download you know facebook pages and things like that and browser and so that yes we have the processes yes we have the behavioral uh, models and then we have a platform uh, library and technology so you can build your own platforms and extend them so that you can take a, a reference that we've created or, or add to it. So we have models of standard uh, parts from companies like uh, Renaissance from uh, in the automotive space, yeah. from the likes of Arm, Arm Versatile Express and things. Uh, more recently, the uh, Sci-Fi have an FU540, which is a quad-core, five-core, actually, processor board. And so we have simulation models of those boards, including the processors, and big little from ARM, and you can do SMP Linux. You can take a, a Linaro ARM distribution and run it on our simulation platform. The software does not know it's not running on the hardware. And you've got, so you've got the capability of modeling the processors, the behavioral components, and the, and the platforms. So you have a complete simulation environment which can be used for software development, and the software doesn't realize it isn't talking to hardware. So you can get that much earlier in the design process. And it sort of enables this whole methodology. Of are, you, are you also looking at cache coherency and memory subsystem type modeling? And is it even um, a relevant problem to address at the software level? It, it, it's definitely a problem in the verification space. It's not really at the uh, software functionality level. It is from a performance point of view. Yes. And the sort of the area that we work in is um, instruction accurate, where we don't model pipelines and we don't tend to model caches. We can model the caches, it's just memory translation yeah. and, and the way of storing it. So we do have models of things like caches, but we try and steer our, our customers away from That's that right. and say, you know, the focus of what we do is to be able to boot Linux in five seconds in a simulation, right? To be yeah. running at real hardware speeds. Level you know, of abstraction is at that system level. Exactly. Not the so, level the, so the idea is we're at the software level. And we're not trying to be cycle-accurate like an RTL simulator or whatever. Mm -hmm. We're not there for the detailed, you know, architectural pipeline analysis or cache analysis. Absolutely, so the yeah. answer is we, we, we try and avoid modeling the detail which will slow things down. Yeah. But also, if you're not modeling the pipeline, cache effects really aren't accurate, they're yeah. bogus. Yeah. And so we... We try and avoid modeling. We do have models of caches and things like that, but we uh, we don't recommend their usage. Yes, I think this is very, very this is a very interesting point, Simon, because we at Aximize are building RISC V architectural proof kits, which we where we are actually looking at verifying the core behavior with respect to an abstract model of the memory, and we don't actually care about how many levels of cache coherency you have because that's not the problem we are solving at, at um, the level of verification of the core, but you're still looking at the core level. We're not actually verifying the full SOC because the full verification of SOC is a different problem. And the problem you're solving here is an SOC embedded software bring up full operating system. And this is um, this is very interesting. So let's let's dive a little bit more into the RISC five. I actually did not know. Um, I know you mentioned this to me before that um, you were looking at ARM for a very long time, but all of your marketing and PR updates these days is very much focused on RISC V. Uh, yes. So I, I don't think a lot of our listeners would actually even know that you've been serving the ARM 
ecosystem. For yeah, I mean, so, so I mean, in, in, in terms of our business, I think I think uh, Risk Five is probably about fifty percent of it now. You know, where we we we've been working for for years around ARM and MIPS, and I think we have twelve different ISAs that are public. Uh, 12 public ISAs that we have models of their processors, and there are, we have three or four which are proprietary that people have used our technology for their own ISAs internally and used our technology. But yeah, so so we started off focusing on the sort of it, simulation of systems to allow people to do more of the software side of things. But what's happened with the evolution of Risk Five? There, um, there are more pressing challenges that we actually have capability to address, namely verification. Hmm. In, an, in an ARM MIPS world, you buy a core from them and you don't have to verify the, the processor, hmm. you just do integration testing, it's much more a system thing. Whereas in the RISC-V world, because of the freedoms that an open ISA gives you, mm -hmm. it means everybody underestimates the amount of verification they've got to do. So we, we for the first 10 years of Imperis almost, we were we, we sort of shunned away and kept away from verification, saying, "Well, that's served by all these other uh, things." But actually, in the in the Risk Five world, there are no good solutions out there, or there were no good solutions out there, because that you know, the art is that if you buy an ARM core, it's verified by ARM, and you just plug it in and it works. But with Risk Five, you need solutions to verify that the process is working, and you have to do much more than just an integration test. And the issues are things like, you know, everybody's going to change it. There's mm -hmm. custom instructions, mm -hmm. custom records. Also, you can pick up open source. And how good is that open source? How compliant is it? How much verification do you have to do? You know, it's, there's a lot of unknowns in the RISC-V world. I mean, it's wonderful in lots of ways, but it brings all these challenges. And what we saw is that the virtual platforms and the simulation technology that we are uh, one of the leaders in, was absolutely essential and applicable to this risk five evolving market. So we got drawn, customers would find us and bring us in and say, well, can you help us with this? Can you help us with that? And so, you know, the, the nature of the, the beast with, with risk five is it's phenomenal. It's open. You can do anything you want, but with that freedoms comes this responsibility absolutely. to verify it mm -hmm. and people underestimate that. And so what, what for us, the easy thing is, doing the RISC-V ISA. The hard bit was all the tools, the high-speed simulator and the multi-core debug and the verification and analysis tools, which were all ISA independent. Mm -hmm. So just plugging in RISC-V ISA means that we have the ability to use all of these sophisticated techniques and tools actually in the RISC-V world for very low effort. And so that's why, you know, in, in a couple of years that we've been involved with RISC-V, we do have absolutely the fastest simulator on the planet for RISC-V, the most sophisticated multi-core debug and analysis tools and everything. And it's it's just starting, people are just starting to realize in the RISC-V world, they, they need it. For example, with simulation, anybody can build, you know, any grad student can build a, a simulation of a RISC-V processor. Mm -hmm. But actually, to do sophisticated verification, you know, I don't know, we've probably got 100 years of effort a simulation technology mm. that's not three months mm -hmm. because you the speed you need the performance you need the the introspection of things you need the analysis you need all of this so let me talk about let me talk about one verification aspect that from a hardware point of view is quite used in simulation is functional coverage and um, 
in code coverage and other such things. Now, when we are looking at verification from a software point of view and simulating software models, are your simulators able to do that kind of coverage analysis to you actually? And how do you go about creating the coverage specifications in the first place? So what is the story around coverage? So stepping back to the original Imperius focus where we were not focused on hardware design verification, we have technologies built into our simulation tools which do standard things like line coverage, mm -hmm. completely non-intrusively, is built into the simulator. We watch every instruction that goes past, you can see where it is related to this, this, the input C, and we can do all sorts of coverage. And so the basic simulation technology we have allows us to do very simple coverage, like instruction coverage, or brand coverage, and uh, line coverage, and things like that. Okay, automatically. Yeah, well, it's built into it. Yeah, and we and what we found is it was very it was needed for one our own internal stuff to see how well we tested things, so that you know you want to know how you know we look at a model and we look at how well it's tested in terms of coverage, in terms of instructions we do instruction coverage internally to make sure again that we've tested it, and then we take it further from a simulation point of view we can actually do um, performance analysis on the model to see where the model is slow instruction by instruction. So from day one, we've had the capability to do analysis on the, the details of the model. So what about the we, functional coverage side? Right, so, so when we switch, yeah. when we switch into, the, into the sort of hardware DB space, mm. there's the concepts of, of, of verification, which has come out with System Verilog with its cover points, mm -hmm. that all the leading simulators have the ability to do this. Mm -hmm. And this sophisticated language developed so that a hardware DB team in their, in their verification spec can say these are the types of things that could be wrong with my microarchitecture that I want to explore and make sure that my tests have stimulated okay. to hazards in pipelines, values through different... Uh, so you would area. rely on an external engineer to supply right. you the so spec? We, so we, we didn't have any of that technology. Hmm. But what we did is uh, we were drawn by customers to integrate with uh, their hardware DV flows yeah. and actually one of our early customers was MIPS, 10 something years ago, who used our stuff internally. And they used it for uh, DV as a, as a golden reference. And so we have added lots of technology over the years based on requirements from them to get specific introspections into the model and things like that. But we didn't do anything on functional coverage. What we did do is we integrated our processor models into system Verilog test benches. Right. So that you could make use of the the expertise in the industry that people have around system Verilog and the coverage groups and cover points and bins and the current methodology that's available in the standard system Verilog tools. So that what we see is that people describe the coverage that they're looking for in system Verilog. Okay. Now, running through our models can give them a lot of information. Now, we don't model the internals of a pipeline, so if they've got coverage where they want to probe inside a pipeline, they get a blank from us. Mm -hmm. but, but most people don't, they can detect things like the hazards, read before rights and everything from instruction sequences. And we work with the, the Google Cloud guys on their RISC-V generator, mm -hmm. and a large part of that over the last year, 2019, was to add functional coverage okay. to that so you could see how good the random generator's coverage was. And we added uh, bit manipulation and uh, vectors for RISC-V. 
uh, to that for uh, under customer contract mm -hmm. to do that. So we we and our, so our simulator does provide some basic functional coverage around instructions, but it's not not the same way, program. not in the same way as DV. Well, it's, it's, it's exactly the same way, but it doesn't give you the programmable ability okay. that the language system Verilog does okay. to describe your own coverage points that you might be interested in, or even sequential ones. Sure. And we don't give you any form of sort of SQL query database to look for cross coverages and things like that. Right. We, work, we rely on the ecosystem where our simulation models work in a Verilog environment and so our customers make use of the test benches that they're building around System Verilog and they will just use our model in there as a reference to, for functional coverage. Right, so this seems very interesting, Simon. I think we can continue talking about this topic for hours, but I have something else to talk to you about as well, which is um, your legacy, uh, if I may say. So we, we were talking recently, and you mentioned about a paper uh, you've written on Verilog and its history, and I, I think there are listeners, a wide, wide variety of our listeners actually are Verilog uh, coders. So they would be interested to hear from one of the inventors on yeah, so, so, yeah, so, I mean, um, okay, so it's nice you call me an inventor of Verilog. I, I, I would be embarrassed to claim that myself because I'm really not. <laughs> Why? Are you, are you saying Verilog is not good enough? <laughs> no, 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 no. I was, one of the, I was involved in the team that developed Hilo. Right, yeah, yeah. One of the guys went off and Phil Morby created Verilog. Yes, and, yeah. You know, he, he did that. And, and I joined Gateway and helped the, the company Gateway promote and evolve Verilog to customers. And... You know, so I didn't get involved in the language design of Verilog. Sure. But what, what I saw is I, as, a, as an applications guy out in the field helping customers, I, I saw it had lots of deficiencies. You know, so, and what I did is in the, my previous company I founded in 95, Peter Flake, we, we founded uh, Co-Design to take Verilog and extend it. And I ended up hiring Phil Morby, the original inventor of Verilog, to come and join me as wow. a scientist within my company. And... What Peter Flake and I did is we took Verilog and we extended it into what we called Superlog. And as it became uh, uh, an IEEE standard and, and through Accelerate, it became called System Verilog. Wow. And also got input from uh, uh, the uh, Vera input in there. So, so I can't claim to be a Verilog uh, designer of Verilog. I was involved in the, the evolution of the Verilog System Verilog language and I'm one of the creators of System Verilog. Wow. And okay. what, what, hap what happened is... Um, um, there is a, a, a technical academic conference every 10 years called OPPL, History of Programming Languages, and it, it only has had three editions in the last 30 years, and the fourth edition is 220, and they invited Phil Morby to write a paper on Verilog, and Phil went, well, actually, his bit was only a little bit of it, so he invited Peter Flake and I and Arturo Saltz to be involved, because Arturo did um, uh, uh, Vera, Peter did Hilo, Peter and I did System Verilog, and Phil did Verilog. And between us, we wrote this paper with, uh, with help from Steve Golson out on the East Coast in the US. And it's some, it's some 100 pages, and it's the ancestors and descendants of Verilog. Wow. So it's the history of Verilog up to the current day, talking about where it came from, who the people involved were, what was good and bad about the languages that we came across, what, what we like about it, what we don't like about it. And it's, it's quite dry and academic, but it has a whole section on the people 
involved. So where can we find this paper? Where can we find this? Um, so the conference um, uh, uh, was scheduled for June. It's uh, not going to be an electronic conference. They're moving it back probably into 2021 now. Okay. But the paper will be published. And what we will do is at some point I'll put a, uh, we'll probably do a, uh, some press announcement or we'll put something on a blog on okay. our Paris website for that and so that you know, your, your listeners could, could come yeah, with that. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure I would and, love to read that one. And I'm, well, I'm it's a, it is pretty dry talking syntax of these uh, 1970s, 80s RTLs and HDLs and all the way to System Verilog. It is, but it is a, a definitive record of the development of what we have today is System Verilog, which is the, the leading language for designing. I mean, and my, kids, my, yeah. my, kids, my kids are absolutely astonished when they, <laughs> they, they read that 90% of the world's electronic is designed using Verilog. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, yeah, I, was, and yeah. I was involved in it. It's right. quite tough. Yeah, yeah. It is quite well. But actually, the, the big challenge now for me and Imperius is how we help everybody with their RISC V stuff get that reliable out there in the world. And because we see it has the opportunity to change electronic products dramatically. So Simon, I know you're a busy person and uh, we have to wrap up our chat today, but before I let you go, I wanted to actually uh, take the opportunity um, to ask you if you can give five tips uh, to become productive uh, with design verification. And our listeners who are practicing professionals, early university graduates, when they're looking to make a career in design verification, uh, what can they take from your experience of, of decades of doing different things? Okay. Right, so, yeah, so I don't know whether it's five, but I'll give you a stream of consciousness. Give me more than five so, if you like. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so the first is a tip. So one of the things that there's a myth, there's a myth that people say, and they say that hardware and software engineers don't talk and DV engineers are just left in the back room. <laughs> right? That's yeah. a myth. No, yeah. that's just not the case anymore. Virtual platforms help all this come together, whether it's the system engineers, the design engineers, the software guys, the hardware DB guys, and companies that embrace this, they end up starting very early with all the different tasks, the software task and the verification task, based around some sort of simulation of virtual platform, they end up with continuous integration and deployment. And you know, so the myth that people don't talk, that's, that's, an, that's fake news. You know, right. it's, uh, people with virtual platforms, there's a lot of communication. And we, you know, it, it can work very well very early. So that's, that's the first one, really. And, and I think the second is, you know, the tip is shift left, which is related to that. You know, hardware DV guys can start very early on writing the specifications for the verification and can start the moment there's any simulation, they can start building tests. I mean, internally in Imperius, you know, we start by writing the test before we write the code. We put it into our regression system, and we keep working on it till it passes, mm -hmm. and then it doesn't go backwards. Yeah. And you have to simulation allows you to shift left, and that's virtual platforms. Very, very. So that's the second uh, sort of tip, really. Um, the third one is that there is a tremendous amount of existing expertise out in the ecosystems, and that it's too easy for people to try and reinvent it. Yeah. And you've got to. And, and that's happened a lot in the risk five world coming out of academics, you know, and maybe they tried to reinvent it because system variable was expensive or whatever, you know, or maybe didn't quite do it how they wanted it. So they just invent something new. So I think the third tip is that, you know, use existing expertise, don't reinvent the wheel, focus on the job in hand, 
know, which is often verifying a chip and stuff. You know, look at the ecosystem, use trusted DDA partners. And, you know, you know, for example, system relic is absolutely the way to go. I mean, I read a lot of papers about people trying to do stuff in other languages or, hey, Python's got a lot of people, let's use that. And that really rings back to, oh, C++ has a lot of users, let's use that. And, you know, I'm not a great fan of these things. I mean, yeah, system Verilog isn't, isn't the world's greatest thing, but it has a huge ecosystem behind it. Make use of the ecosystem to get your chip done. Don't try and reinvent things which are at the side of it. Um, so that's the third tip. Fourth tip is never stop testing or never start early testing. You know, it's sort of running regressions. First thing you should do is build a regression test system so that the moment you put a test in, it's tested all the time so that you never go backwards. You can use, it is amazing how much automation you can use mm -hmm. in this modern world with so many computers, such resources out there. It's, it's phenomenal. Test, 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 test. Because verification, you know, that's the fifth one. Use everything that's possible out there. And that's, you know, we're, we, we sell uh, dynamic simulation and analysis. Of course, there's static analysis, there's formal, there's, you know, do all you can to test, whether it's, you know, beg, borrowing, stealing tests, you know, random generation, get all you can do as much test compliance tests, you know, you've got to do as much testing as you can. And, and because fundamentally, tape out's a hard stop. There's no yeah. patching. Yeah, there's no going no, back unless you lose no patching. Yeah. Tape out is, is the hard stop. Mm. So and verification is, is everything. So, you know, that, those are my tips, really. You know, use everything you've got. Run as much regressions as you can. Make use of the ecosystem. Start early with virtual platforms. And make sure everybody's talking. Yeah, this is great because these are all of the things that are practically required at an engineering level. And I've been in different companies where I see that something which you may say is simple and common sense based is also not happening. But hey, thank you very much uh, for your time. I know um, you're, you're running very busy these days, uh, despite the lockdown. Uh, I think you're all trying to get more and more work done. Uh, but I genuinely want to thank you for your time, Simon, today. Uh, I think we have a lot to cover on RISC five. I think we can, we can sync up again uh, and uh, take it from there. Thank you. Yeah, very great. Much. Well, thanks, thanks, for, thanks very much, Ashish. It's been a pleasure. It's been funny sort of going back to my roots and thinking about it. And yeah, I spend my day to day thinking and worrying about RISC V, but actually, a significant part of the world is not using RISC V, it is using ARM. And there are some fantastic solutions out there. Yeah. Um, it's exciting in the verification world at the moment, RISC V, but the overall job of getting software up and running on embedded products. A lot of it is not risk five yet. <laughs> yeah. But you know, so it's we have to be balanced. Yeah. Yeah. But we're in a bubble of risk five at the moment, just because that's what our, my engineering is doing. But actually, a lot of customer focus is, is not at risk five. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank okay. You very Thanks much. very much. Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank you. So, friends, I hope you liked today's podcast. We were very lucky to be able to talk to such an accomplished luminary like Simon today. Do let us know by emailing us at info Please subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay connected. And also you can subscribe to our Axiomize newsletters. So we will see you next week. Stay healthy and stay connected.